going to have a, <laughs> a Thanksgiving dinner here on Thanksgiving Day, November 28th, in here at noon. There's a sign-up sheet on the back table. If you don't have family or no plans and you would like to come, please do. Um, ladies, we, we do want everyone in our, in our, every woman in our fellowship to use their spiritual gifts or sign-up sheets on back, in the back on the table where you can sign up for a ministry that you may want to be a part of. Polly is overall ramrodding this, this business. And our next potluck will be next Sunday, November 17th. So you're all welcome, of course. Please bring a dish to share, and we'll have that in here after church. All right, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment to do that, and then I will open us up with a prayer, and we'll get started this morning. Father, we thank you for the work that Christ did on the cross that allows us to be saved and to come into the family of God, to be adopted into the family of God, and to uh, be able to come into your presence, not because uh, we have any righteousness that would commend us to you, but because we have Christ's righteousness, which is perfect righteousness, and therefore we are enabled by means of who he is and what he did to come into your presence in him. And we're so grateful for that. We thank you for that. And we, we know that there are millions and billions of people in the world who need to hear that gospel message so that they too can enjoy being adopted into the family of God. And yet we know that so few people will ever really accept it and believe it and want it because of the work that Satan is doing in the world right now. But help us to be a light to those lost people. Help us to be a beacon of truth to those people and help us to be alert for opportunities to tell them about Christ. So Father, I pray for your blessing on everyone that's here today. I pray that you bless them and keep them in the coming week. I pray that you help us to serve you and glorify your name in all that we do. And I pray, Lord, that you uh, lead us and guide us into knowing the Word of God so that we can live our lives according to the way that you want us to do it. We thank you for your Word, and we thank you that we're able to come into this house this morning and study it. And I pray for your blessing on this lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as you know, I messed up last week and I got little things out of order. So I'm, we're going to be in Isaiah 16, verse 6 this morning through 17:11. We're continuing on here. It's still discussing Moab, which it has been for a couple of lessons here. We're going to see today that pride was the sin that led Moab down the path that resulted in judgment. And grief, of course, was the inevitable result. God is patient, but there's always a reckoning that must be had for rebelling against him. Dr. Oswald said this, verses 7 to 11 contain an extended metaphor in which Moab is compared to a luxurious grapevine which had spread out over the whole region, but now is trampled down, so that the shouts of laughter and excitement which once attended the harvest have now been silenced and replaced with wails of grief. So let's read verses 6 to 8 in chapter 16. We have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. Therefore, Moab will wail. Everyone of Moab will wail. You will moan for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth as those who are utterly stricken. 
for the fields of Heshbon have been withered, the vines of Sibma as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters, which reached as far as Jazer and wandered into the deserts. Its tendrils spread themselves out and passed over the sea. The word pride here is gaon, and it means height, eminence, and loftiness from a root meaning to lift something up high. So therefore, in this context, it's a lifting up of oneself. It also means pride, arrogance, and conceit, which is also the context here. So it has this sense of unreasonable and inordinate self-esteem resulting in the undue warranting of high status, and it's regarded as a moral failure. And we still look at pride the same way today. Nothing in the sinful human condition has changed over these thousands of years. So not only was Moab operating in rebellion to God out of an unwarranted sense of pride, they exhibited excessive pride. The word excessive is me'od, and it means muchness, abundance, exceedingly, but it also may mean strength and force. I think it's interesting in the Septuagint, they used the Greek, Greek word hubris, which was a word that we're familiar with, to translate this word meaning insolence. Now, in English, hubris means excessive pride and self-confidence, which is exactly what the Hebrew word is trying to portray. Even though it's an earthly nation and its army that will eventually destroy Moab, it will be accomplished because it's God's will that it be done. And this reason is due to Moab's rebellion, described by Jeremiah as being arrogant against Yahweh. Jeremiah said it this way in Jeremiah 48, 35, and 42. He said, I will make an end of Moab, declares the Lord, the one who offers sacrifice on the high place and the one who burns incense to his gods. Moab will be destroyed from being a people because he has become arrogant toward the Lord. And arrogance is a word, of course, that goes along with pride. And that word is gadal, and it means to be great, exalted, or to make oneself great. It refers to being in a state of honor, glory, and so to have high status. And the implication here is that the Moabites believe themselves to be their own God, which is the normal state of the world, of course. Everybody wants to be their own God until they come to Christ, and even then some people have a problem in that area. It just seems to be part of our sinful nature that we want to make ourselves our own God. Now, at its most basic level, pride is the expression of inordinate focus on self with no regard for God. God is not considered a necessary element of a life lived in excessive pride, resulting in a perceived sense of self-sufficiency, but it is instead rebellion. In the end, the rebellion will be quelled and judged, and every human being will acknowledge God is God. Isaiah predicted this, and Paul quoted it in Romans 14:11 and in Philippians 2. Believers will acknowledge God as God with joy and thanksgiving. Unbelievers may do it with resentment, anger, and hatred, and certainly in fear as they realize the consequences for their rebellion against God. And every unbeliever will eventually wail, just as Moab wailed when they were judged by God's agent army. But let's look back here and see what Isaiah said about everyone acknowledging God. In uh, Isaiah 45, 22, and 23, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, 
The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And then Paul quoted this in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the end of Jesus, so at the, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every human being who has ever lived is one day going to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord. Now the prophet elaborated and called out the Moabites for their arrogance, pride, and fury. Fury is an additional element and refers to the often combative relations born of hatred that had occurred over the centuries between Israel and Moab. His idle boasts are false. The word boast is uh, bad and it means boasting or idle, loose or empty talk. It refers to speaking of oneself in superlatives. In this context, these boasts are lies. This word false here is negated and it's a uh, Locane, which literally means not honest. They were speaking lies, particularly towards God, but also towards God's people. Now, there was a reference in the scripture we read uh, about the production of raisin cakes, which was a major agricultural activity in Moab, at least as major as it could be in a place that was largely desert. And that was going to be laid waste when God's judgment was imposed upon the nation. Uh, Venticulture must have been practiced on every parcel of land that could support the industry. When a nation's agricultural industry is destroyed, there's more than ample reason for grief. And the word uh, wail means is uh, yalal, and it means to howl, to lament, to wail. It refers to emitting long, loud cries. So when a, a, a nation's agricultural productivity is curtailed some way, that is ample reason for people to wail because hunger is one of the most basic needs that we have to satisfy. And it doesn't take very long to get desperate when you don't have anything to eat. So I don't think that we can understand the depth and the extent of this grief. Their nation was completely destroyed. Now certainly we can relate to national grief and mourning, but our nation has never been so destroyed that times of national mourning were called on account of it, then to some extent we have had periods of national mourning. Uh, the Civil War comes to mind. That might be the most extreme period I can think of. But Pearl Harbor and the assassination of JFK were also periods of national mourning. But we've never experienced the type of national devastation that threatens the lives of everyone on a daily basis, whether by disease, starvation, or warfare. And we should be very grateful that we live in a day and time and a place where that has been our lives because the way we have lived in this country has been very unusual according to the standards of world history, at least in many places. Isaiah expressed his grief over the fate of Moad, which represented God's grief as well. Uh, God takes no delight in the destruction of even those who hate him. He would rather see them come to faith and be saved. Nevertheless, his attributes of holiness and justice must be upheld alongside his attributes of love, grace, 
mercy, and forgiveness. Dr. Smith said this, this is a terrible tragedy that brings no joy or jubilation to the prophet or God. God does not want to see people punished. He does not take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked or their land. Ezekiel 33.11 had this to say. It says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Obviously that is directed towards Israel, but God loves Gentiles just as much, and he has no desire for Gentiles to be destroyed either. Isaiah 16, 9 to 11. I will weep bitterly for Jezer, for the vine of Sibma. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elialeh, for the shouting over your summer fruits and your harvest has fallen away. Gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field. In the vineyards also there be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. No treader thread, treads out, while the, out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. Therefore, my heart intones like a harp for Moab, and my inward feelings for Kir, Haraseth. The word heart here is not the usual word for heart. It's me'eh, and it means the internal organs, the bowels, the entrails, or the inward parts. It refers to individual internal organs, such as the stomach, the bowels, the womb, and so forth. But it may also refer to these parts collectively, just as the inner or inward parts. Figuratively, it refers to the seat of motions or to the heart. And the normal word that specifically refers to the heart as a bodily organ is lave, or also lavav at times. Our inward feelings is kerev, and it means kerev means mist, middle, interior, inner parts, inner organs, bowels, or inner being. It particularly referred to the inner organs of the human body. Figuratively, it's used to describe the inner being of a person. It was thought to be the seat of the moral disposition, and it directed people's affections and desires. And the word is used here to refer to the heart, the soul, and various other internal organs as the seat of some psychological functions. Now, the inner parts of the human being were thought then to be the source of thought and emotion, rather than the brain as we know it today. Um, however, we still think this way in, in some ways. We still make figurative references that way. We say that we suffer a heartache or we have had a broken heart. Well, that's hearkening all the way back to these ideas of ancient people who thought the seat of emotions and thought was in the inner parts and not in the brain. They didn't understand that apparently. Uh, the difference is that they didn't understand the brain and its functions as we now understand it. In human beings, the inner man may contain God's wisdom but it's also the seed of evil thoughts which may manifest themselves in sinful deeds. Now, I think the King James Version has the most literal translation. It says, Wherefore my bowels shall sound like an harp for Moab and mine inward parts for Kir Haresh. That's probably the most literal. The Tanakh probably has the best sense of the meaning translating these words as heart and soul. In other words, wherefore my heart shall sound like a harp for Moab, and my soul for Kir Haresh. 
So this most literal translation, I think, sounds a little bit strange to our ears today, suggesting that our bowels sound like a harp probably is a little bit of sensory overload for most of us. You know, I, I, that just doesn't work for us too well. The figurative meaning that suggests the genuine emotional anguish the prophet felt is perfectly in keeping with the meaning here, though. They were anguished about what was going to happen. This is a quote from Oswald. The prospect of the destruction of the rich land reduces the prophet to tears. The prospect of the destruction of so much effort and care on the part of so many people and the reducing of ordered, cultivated lands to wilderness is certainly cause for despair, no matter who the people may be. This speaks, too, of the compassion of God, for the prophet usually identified himself with God. The hand which meets out judgment is not separated from the spirit which grieves over the necessity and effects of such judgment. So the God who has stilled the shouts of joy is also the God who weeps for and with those who now cry. The God of the Old Testament is not a force, not even a personalized force. He is a full-orb personality interacting in depth with persons. And certainly that's still true today. Now the problem for the Moabites is that they would, at least at that time, continue to reject Yahweh and seek refuge in the false, worthless gods they had worshipped all along. Verse 12, so it will come about when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself upon his high place, and comes to his sanctuary to pray, that he will not prevail. So the Moabites can go up on their high places to worship their god or gods, at least Kamosh, if not others. Remember, Kamosh was the god they sacrificed babies to. And wear themselves out doing it, but it will be to no avail. False gods cannot protect or save anyone. Not prevail is lo you call, you call uh, from Yakol, which means to be able to prevail, to overcome, to have victory. It refers to conquering a foe or opponent and so have victory as an extension of being able or capable to actually accomplish something. But this word is negated. That's what the low is here, meaning it will not come to pass. They will not prevail. Their false gods or gods can do nothing for them, and they are doomed to suffer God's wrath. And the prophecy concerning the imposition of God's wrath on Moab was given in terms of time as within three years in verses 13 and 14. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. But now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with all his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. So Moab, in a sense, wasn't destroyed. The land still exists. The geographical area still exists. Not all the people were killed. The people, their descendants, still exist today. It's not what it once was, of course, but it's still there. And throughout history, there have probably been some people from that area who have placed their faith in the Lord, but not many. One day, some of the final survivors of Moab will become believers and will enter the kingdom. Others will face judgment and consignment to the lake of fire and be unable to enter the kingdom. Okay, now the next chapter reveals God's prophecy concerning Damascus. And Damascus is located northeast of Israel in what is today known as Syria. Of course, it's right here. 
And, and I've always kind of had in my mind, I don't know why, that Damascus is a little further east, more out in the desert, but it's closer to the coastal plain. So they get a little more rain over in this area, which means they do have agricultural productivity in that area. In Aramaic, the name means a well-watered place, which is interesting since we consider it to be desert, but it, can, it does get some rain. And here you can see a little better in terms of uh, the kingdom. Here's Damascus up here, just east of the Lebanon and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And then, of course, it was known as Aram. And the Assyrians were up here on the northeast, to the northeast of Damascus. And at this time, remember, they're, they're part of the subject here. They're going to be destroying Damascus and, of course, Israel at some point. They're also going to cause Judah problems, which is down here. Now, this city is said to be the longest continually occupied city in the world, which is an important factor to remember or to consider in this upcoming prophecy. It can be dated to beyond 3000 BC. It sits in the Gouda Plain, which is a fertile agricultural area about 2,300 feet above sea level. The Barada River, formerly known as the Abana and, or Abana, or the Amana River, flows through it, which made Damascus a very prosperous city in the Middle East region. The region only gets 10 to 12 inches of rainfall annually but the winter rains replenish some lakes in the region that provides the water necessary to ensure successful grain harvest. The location was advantageous in allowing the city to become an important center for trade and commerce because the Via Maris Highway, which ran alongside the Mediterranean Sea, took a right turn, partly part of it, and went through Damascus, and the King's Highway, which ran on the east side of the Jordan, thought I had him. oh, here they are, this is the Via Maris here, going right next to the Mediterranean Sea, west of Jerusalem there. It also continued on to the north, but it also took a right turn here to go through Damascus. And here we have the King's Highway on the east side of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, which also went to Damascus. And then it took a right turn on towards Babylon, where the Via Maris went up north and had a couple of different routes going back down towards Babylon itself as well. So these are important areas here at the time. Now the rivers of Syria must have been a source of pride for the residents there. You remember the story about the Syrian leper Naaman who went to Elisha for healing and the prophet directed him to wash in the Jordan River and the Syrian's response was, are not the Abana and Farpar rivers, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? So we see this uh, reference to the rivers there. Right, let's look in Isaiah 17, 1 to 3. The oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to, remove, to be removed from being a city and will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down in, and there will be no one to frighten them. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, and sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram they will be like the glory of the sons of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. But this prophecy has never been completely fulfilled. It has short-term and long-term aspects to it, as so many of Isaiah's prophecies do. Damascus has seen many wars, suffered a lot of damage, and has been ruled by many different nations and kings over the centuries, but it's never been completely removed as a city. And in fact, they are experiencing warfare even today. 
Furthermore, it's been continuing occupied as a city for thousands of years. But at some point in the future, this prophecy will become a completely fulfilled reality. The prophet used the term, in that day, four times in the next verses we're going to look at, 4, 7, 9, and 11, indicating an end times element to this prophecy. That seems to be the point to an end of days fulfillment of that prophecy. In that case, Tiglath-Pileser III's conquest, which is what this is talking about in the time frame here, would be a mere foreshadowing of a far more serious conquest at when? The end of days, during the tribulation. In that day, you remember now, it doesn't always suggest an eschatological scenario, but it does a lot of the time, and in this context, that's exactly what it's talking about. Now, Jeremiah spoke about Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army's destruction of Damascus in Jeremiah 49, 23-27, which followed Assyria's conquest, who was not the first nor the last to conquer Damascus with an invading army, but it was never completely devastated to the point of being uninhabited. And that's the point I'm bringing up here in Jeremiah. Since he said Babylon destroyed it, when did Babylon destroy it? After Assyria destroyed it, which is what they're talking about here. So you see, it's been destroyed and rebuilt, but it's been continuously inhabited for thousands of years now. So in the immediate context of Isaiah, Ephraim entered into a mutual self-defense pact with Damascus to ward off Assyrian aggression. Now remember, Israel also attempted with the king of Aram to coerce Judah into joining their alliance. We talked about that back in chapters 7 and 8. But Isaiah counseled against it. Now Ahaz didn't listen, of course, and got Judah involved in an unholy alliance with Assyria. But the Israelites, whether north or south, were never to trust in pagan nations for safety and security. They were to trust in their God. And that lack of trust also manifested itself in pagan worship. They would be judged by God for both actions. The fall of Damascus was intended to be a warning to Israel, but it was a warning that went unheeded. And also in Judah, because here we have the story about uh, Ahaz getting involved with them. Of course, he was king in Judah, 2 Kings 16, 7-9. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and captured it and carried the people of it away into exile to Kir and put Rezin to death. And, of course, they also tried to attack uh, Jerusalem and Israel and Judah and did destroy many of the cities, and that is when the angel of the Lord stepped in and, and killed the Assyrian army. So Damascus was eventually conquered by Assyria in 732 B.C., and that was followed by the conquest of Israel in 722 B.C., ten years later. Israel, the northern kingdom, had been in rebellion against the Lord for the duration of the nation's existence. From the start, they established paganism as a religion via the shrines at Bethel and Dan under the leadership, and I use that word loosely, I'm not sure you can call it leadership, of the pagan kings and queens of the northern kingdom. And all the kings of the northern kingdom had been unfaithful to the Lord in various ways during their reigns. 
by entering into an alliance with a pagan nation, Aram, Israel subjected herself to the judgment that Aram was going to suffer. And other cities east of the Jordan were also going to be decimated by Assyria. You can understand what a horrible time this was. I think the, maybe we can relate it to Hitler and Japan in World War II trying to conquer so much area and land around them. The land will be used to pasture flocks of sheep and goats, and there will be no peoples in the air to disturb them. But how long that lasted is not known because we know it was the Assyrian practice to move conquered peoples out of their land and move people of their own choosing in to repopulate the area. That practice was how Israel became Samaria. Ephraim, used as a representation for Israel, was also going to be destroyed. Damascus was going to fall under the rule of Assyria, and her people would be removed by their conquerors, just as Israel's people were going to be removed. And the fortified city we read about in the scripture was a reference to Samaria, Israel's capital city. They recall the story that after Assyria conquered Israel, they took the people out, then they moved other people in to repopulate it, and hence those people who were partly Jews, partly not, became what during the, the Lord's ministry was known as the Samaritans. Now the next verses refer to the northern kingdom of Israel, although the characteristics of this judgment will also eventually be applicable to the southern kingdom in Isaiah 17, 4 and 5. Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears. Or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. So here in this context, in that day is a prophetic key that more than just the time of the prophet is under consideration. The once mighty nation will be characterized by being lean rather than by being fat. After God established Israel in the land, their rejection of him happened fairly quickly and consistently, interrupted only occasionally by good leaders and kings. The state of affairs as described here happened more frequently and more, more intensity the closer the two nations got to judgment through Assyria in the north and Babylon in the south. After that, the nation was characterized by subjugation in one form or another, culminating eventually in the diaspora during after Rome, uh, 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. At this time in history, though, they are back in the land and prosperous, but that will end when the tribulation begins and the conditions described here will happen again. Now, Kyle and Delich, who are not dispensationalists, applied this situation to Judah as well which is the point I'm making here. This second turn does not speak of Damascus, but simply of Israel, and in fact, all of Israel. The range of visions widening out from Israel in the more restricted sense, in other words, just from not just the northern kingdom, but to the southern, so as to embrace the whole. It will all disappear, with the exception of a small remnant, but the latter will return, and the small remnant will turn with steadfast gaze to the living God. That's all true. They don't believe in all of the eschatology going on that we do in terms of the kingdom and the tribulation and all that. But they're, they're right here in that these scriptures here have a broader range than just this time period of Assyria destroying Israel. That's the immediate, immediate context, but that's merging into an end times prophecy as well. And as I said, even some non-dispensational theologians such as Kyle and Delich uh, recognize it. 
the word fade is dalal, and it means to hang, to be low, to become feeble. It refers to becoming small and unimportant. And the Old Testament uses it to mean languish or to become needy. The word fat here is mishman, mishman, and it means fatness. The literal meaning refers to body tissue, of course, containing stored fat that serves as a source of energy. It also cushions and insulates vital organs. Figuratively, it refers to a person who has rugged physical strength and a stout, sturdy warrior. So they used it as a good term, whereas we think today of being fat is not such a good thing. The lack of fat means that one has no energy and a weakened body that has less ability to defend itself. And then opposite of fat is lean, of course, and that's raza, means to waste away, to become physically weaker, to starve. The verb is passive, meaning that it's a judgment imposed on them by God. In other words, God is going to be what causes things to happen to make them lean and to waste away. So the picture here is one of a nation, Israel, that is terribly needy and helpless due to their collective national rejection of the Lord and the subsequent temporal discipline he imposed on the nation as a whole for their infidelity. Israel would be temporally disciplined by God at the hands of a pagan nation unknowingly acting as God's punitive agent and become weak and unable to defend himself. This is a simile. It's talking about then a harvest of people that is likened to an agricultural harvest. The judgment is compared to a thorough harvest with only a few gleanings left. Now there'll be only a few of the Israelites remaining, meaning that once judgment has occurred. The, the few Israelites left in the northern kingdom, as I mentioned earlier, intermarried, intermarried with the pagans of Syria brought into the land to settle it, resulting in the Samaritan people who were only part Jewish. As noted, some people remain in Damascus because it has been lived in continually for thousands of years and never uninhabited as it will be at some point in the future. Constable said this, Jacob's prosperity would become lean as woman grows old and loses his former strength because of her unbelief, her lack of trust in God. She would experience a thorough reaping of her population as reapers harvested abundant grain crops in the productive valley of Rephaim near Jerusalem. Yet a remnant would survive, like the few other olives or fruits left after a harvest for gleaner, gleaners to collect. This is what Yahweh, the God who had pledged himself to Israel, declared. Verse 6. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives in the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. Now this was applicable in Isaiah's time, but this is not necessarily in the context of a believing remnant, although some of them may well have been. Rather, it's referring to a national Israelite remnant consisting of those who may or may not have been believers. At the end of the ultimate judgment, the tribulation, then there will be only a believing remnant that will be allowed to enter the kingdom. So even in the midst of this judgment, it's noteworthy that God promised to spare a remnant and declared himself to be Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the covenant-keeping God. It doesn't matter 
how unfaithful Israel gets to be, they're going to be temporally punished, according to Leviticus 28, or Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, but they're never going to be completely abandoned by God and done away with, as so many people today want to say has happened to Israel. Now, Israel was warning Judah that the proposed alignment with Israel and Aram was doomed to failure. Both of those nations were going to be destroyed with only a remnant of people left. But Judah, of course, Israel too, both of them ignored his warnings. And ultimately, after judgment, Israel as a nation will return to the Lord. This did not happen after Assyria conquered the northern kingdom. In fact, they never even returned back to the land of Israel. After Judah returned to the land from Babylon, they did abandon idolatry, but it would be stretched to say that they wholeheartedly returned to the Lord. Today, most Jewish people are agnostics or atheists who have embraced secular humanism, and the Orthodox Jews are obviously not believers in Christ Jesus. So the believing remnant is very small in comparison to the overall Jewish population. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will not occur until the tribulation ends and the saved remnant enters the kingdom. Verses 7 and 8. In that day, man will have regard for his maker, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the asherim and incense stands. So here again, the prophetic phrase, in that day, introduces these verses, which serve in this context as an eschatological marker. While these things are always true of the believing remnant, they've never been true of the nation as a whole. The nation has been characterized by no regard for their maker, rather than by regard for him. This is the use of in that day that has the most definitive eschatological context of these four verses that I talked about here in these, this section of Isaiah 17. Another indication that this has an eschatological context is in the use of the word man, which is here Adam, which, has, which was not only the personal name of the first man, Adam, and it not only refers to an individual male person, but it also refers to mankind. So the context, the glory of Jacob, refers to Israel. But at the end of the history, there will be not only Israelites who will remain, but there will be a believing cohort of Gentiles who will believe and enter the kingdom alongside the Israelites. The use of the word maker implies that all Israelites will recognize that the God of their fathers is the God who created them as a nation, as a people, and as individuals. And God's promise to be their God as they would be his people will be fully and finally realized. But his people are not only the Israelites, but Gentiles as well at that time. But remember this promise back in Exodus 6-7. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So due to Israel's rebellion, that was not completely realized at that time, but Ezekiel referred to a time, to a time the same time Isaiah is referring to here, when it will be completely realized in Ezekiel 36, 28. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, 
So you will be my people, and I will be your God. So that's going to be fulfilled, but it's not going to be fulfilled until the kingdom. Now, in light of the use of the word man and the eschatological implications present in this verse, it's also a reference to everyone who has regard for his maker, the God of Israel. And few commentaries suggest the use of man as mankind in this verse, but some do. Uh, Dr. Constable applied it to not only the Israelites, but to the Aramaeans as well, which suggests that he noticed some significance to the use of the word man here. Matyer also applied it to the Aramaeans because he recognized that Isaiah was revealing this prophecy to be wider than just Israel. Uh, another uh, commentary said, uh, in the word commentary, said, said the, the, he translated this word Adam as humankind rather than as a man or just as the Israelites. So he got that right. It is referring to mankind in general. But that author would not see any literal kingdom reference in this verse as I do. And Goldingley also referred to the word as humankind. So you see, and, and he wouldn't understand it the way we do either. But nevertheless, my point is these guys are seeing that this is bigger than just Israel here, this prophecy. That word of, the use of that word Adam referring to humankind is, is the key here. So this suggests that not only the Israelites will one day turn to their maker, but Gentiles, represented here by the Aramaeans, will be saved as well. So after millennia of rejecting God, or at least ignoring him, the Israelites will finally regard him. The word regard is sha'ah, and in this context it means, context, it means to look on him with high regard and appreciation. Its basic meaning is to look on with favor. It refers to looking at with interest. It is never a casual or disinterested glance. It is a looking at in expectation. It may have the sense of seeing with understanding. And this will be a different way of looking at God than the nation expressed throughout most of its history. The Israelites will finally, as a nation composed of saved individuals, in other words, the remnant, regard the Holy One of Israel. As Constable noted, however, we cannot ignore the fact that this prophecy concerns both Israel and Aram, who together made an unholy alliance in terms of a mutual self-defense covenant, and they were both going to suffer the consequences. This prophecy suggests that some of both will one day turn to the Lord but that did not happen when Assyria destroyed those nations in the 6th century B.C. So there was a warning in this prophecy for Judah about uh, not only about foreign entanglements, but also about Baal worship. Ahaz was the king of Judah at the time, and he was the king who entered into the alliance with Assyria that Isaiah was warning against. And Ahaz also promoted Baal worship. Eventually, the Israelites will no longer engage in idolatry. The Babylonian captivity took the overt idolatry out of uh, the overt idolatry of the false religious category out of play. But didn't the Israelites replace that with other forms of idolatry? See, everybody wants to say, well, after the Babylonian captivity, the Israelites totally left abandoned idolatry. I'm not so sure about that. It's pretty clear that during the Lord's ministry, the rabbinical additions to the law had become a form of idolatry to the 
ruling religious class. Professional success and money seem to be common, common forms of idolatry today. And these things will not be completely eliminated until the kingdom is inaugurated. So what I'm saying is, yes, Israel abandoned Kamosh and Baal and all those forms of idolatry that they were engaged in before they were judged by Babylon, by God through Babylon. But they've replaced those things with other things, just as human beings all do, one way or another. People tend to make idols out of things. So I just wouldn't go so far as to say that they don't have any idols at all today. They just kind of changed form a little bit. Now, up to the time that Assyria conquered Israel, pagan idolatry continued in the land, and idolatry was rampant in Judah until the Babylonian captivity. And once this prophecy is fulfilled, the work of man's hands will no longer be a factor in Israelite life in any way, and not just in terms of worship. They will not be making altars to honor false gods, nor will they be offering incense to them. Asherah was simply the Canaanite iteration of the mother-child fertility cult that began in Babylon with Nimrod and his wife Semiramis. And once the kingdom begins, idolatry will not exist among Jew or Gentile. And even if a Gentile begins to display pagan tendencies, we know that the king who will rule with a rod of iron will quickly shut it down. It won't be tolerated. Now, at some point, judgment is going to fall, but God is faithful to keep his covenants with Israel. And there will be a faithful remnant who inherit the promises. The one thing we have to keep in mind is that God's disciplinary actions against the Israelites are cyclical and progressively more serious, culminating in the tribulation and their final return to and regard for God. This concept is inherently a part of the dual fulfillment that we see so often here in Isaiah. The prophecy has a meaning and a fulfillment in its historical setting, but it also has a complete fulfillment at the end of the age and the beginning of the Messianic kingdom. The earlier may be considered to be a type of the latter, and I've, I'm becoming more convinced of that as I study this book of Isaiah. I'm not big on this typology business because some people want to get in the Old Testament and make everything a type of Christ, and that's way out of bounds. But when we're seeing these dual fulfillment things, we have a temporal prophecy about judgment in that time, yet it's not completely fulfilled, and we know that it's eschatological, and I've given you example after example of dispensational theologians who agree with me on that. Then we have to look at some of these things as kind of a type of what's going to happen at the end. So I've become a little more convinced of that as I've studied this book. In terms of these verses, Israel is said to turn to God, but with the exception of some believing Israelites who are the remnant, that didn't happen at that time. Israel never returned to the land in mass, although the way was open for some of them to migrate back to post-captivity Israel when the people of Judah reestablished their nation. And how many people from the northern kingdom eventually made their way into the southern kingdom is not known. Now, we do know that some of them fled the northern kingdom and removed, um, fled all the idolatry in the northern kingdom and went into Judah before uh, Israel was destroyed by Assyria. The Bible speaks to that. But we don't know how many, say, after Babylon, how many Jewish descendants of the north came back. Some of them had to have. Anyway, the ten tribes aren't lost, as people like to make them think. They, they weren't massacred. They weren't totally destroyed. They're still around. God knows who they are, and he'll figure it all out in the end who belongs to what tribe. We see that in Revelation when the 
144,000 witnesses come from what? The 12 tribes. And of course, the day is open today for them to return. Jews from all over the world can go back to Israel today. And certainly many of them have come from those 10 tribes that maybe they don't know who they belong to anymore, but God knows. And the eschatological marker now in that day appears again in verse 9. In that day, their strong cities will be like forsaken places in the forest or like branches which they abandoned before the sons of Israel, and the land will be a desolation. Now, this is apparently a reference to the results of Israel's conquest of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. The implication is that Israel is going to suffer the same fate for their rebellion against God. The devastation is being used as an example of the devastation that takes place at the command of God for their rebellion, and that's true whether it happened then or in the past or in the future. Desolation, Shamama, means a devastation, a waste, an uninhabited region that is worthless for agricultural cultivation. It may also refer to a deserted, uninhabited region. The basic concept of the root is the desolation caused by a disaster, which is usually the result of divine judgment. This word does not imply permanent dev devastation. The area can recover. Israel recovered after the Assyrian conquest, and Judah recovered after the Babylonian conquest, and certainly Israel today has recovered from all of the almost 2,000 years of neglect of the land that happened under all of the, the Romans and the Ottoman Turks and the Muslims and whoever else has been in that land, it was pretty much a desolation until the Jews came back in and it brought it back to life. So these places can recover. Israel and the world will also recover after the devastation of God's judgment on planet Earth during the tribulation. The devastation that Israel will experience at the hands of the Assyrians then is a type of the devastation the nation will experience to a far greater extent in the end times judgment. Now, verses 10 and 11 use the metaphor of horticulture to condemn the worship of false gods. There's an element of pagan horticulture evident in this scripture because pagans planted gardens to secure the favor of their gods, and the Israelites had rejected Yahweh and embraced pagan worship practices. Verses 10 and 11. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. In the day that you plant it, you carefully fix it in, and the morning you bring your seed to blossom, but the harvest will be a heap in a day of sickness and incurable pain. Now, Constable likened this to planting little seedlings of faith in idols. Uh, people have an insatiable drive to worship something or someone. They always have. Therefore, once they reject the creator God, they have to replace him with another God. And the Israelites were no different. They had, they had delightful plants, and they slipped in some weeds in the form of a strange God. It blossoms. It looks wonderful for a time. They cultivate, cultivate it and care for it, but eventually it becomes a harvest that is a day of sickness and incurable pain. And whatever good things people think they enjoy by rebelling against God will eventually be turned into something horrible beyond description. And that's equally applicable to the imposition of God's temporal wrath 
or to the eternal judgment the unsaved will eventually experience. This is a metaphorical description of the willful rebellion against God and the results of the judgment God will inflict on them for their rejection of him. This represents the concept of reaping that which has been sown. And that's all true, but is it in this verse? Well, many theologians under this understand this verse to be saying that Israel planted bad plants but expected a good harvest. For example, Young wrote, what kind of gardener is he who plants thistles and expects roses? But that's not what happened. That's not what the text says happened. God gave Israel the finest plants. They didn't plant them. God gave them to them. But instead of carefully cultivating them, they grafted in detestable shoots that could only produce indelible, inedible fruit, which took over and destroyed the fine plants they originally possessed. They may have thought they would get a good harvest, but they sabotaged it themselves with bad gardening practices by introducing alien plants, which ensured a horrible harvest. All they had to do was care for what God gave them in the first place, in the manner that he wanted them to care for it, but they refused to do it. The word God is not in the text. You notice that in the scripture here, I struck it out. There's no doubt that Israel was engaged in pagan worship. It was deliberately introduced by Jeroboam to keep the Israelites of the northern kingdom from going to Jerusalem for worship at the temple. He was afraid they would stay if they went back. He created golden calf idols at Dan and Bethel and created his own priesthood. The word used in the text here is czar, meaning strange, different, or foreign. It refers to being definitely out of the ordinary and unexpected. Uh, I like the Lexham English Bible translation of the last sentence in this verse. Therefore, you plant plants of pleasantness, and you plant a vine of a foreigner or a stranger. Now, the picture here is one of rejecting God and embracing paganism in his place, which led to an unholy alliance with a pagan king. So here's a chronological summary, then, of the events revealed in these verses. God was rejected by the nation. The pleasant places were planted and cultivated with all kinds of sensual fertility cult practices. The ground was set with strange plants to an alliance with the king of Damascus. A fence was set around their pagan religion, ensuring the perpetuity of its pagan religion by making it the official state religion. In other words, Jeroboam and his golden calves with its own priesthood. The foreign plant blossomed into an alliance pledging to attack Judah. And all was not as it appeared. The nation was a, was a heap ripe for judgment, which would inflict pain and death and turn the pleasant places into a place of sorrow. And eventually, of course, that happened when Assyria conquered them in 722 B.C. And some, in 586 B.C., what's that, 120 or 30 years later, Judah and Jerusalem suffered the same fate at the hands of the Babylonians for their own rebellion. So God's going to temporary discipline Israel right up until the end when they finally call upon him and they have pierced, as Zechariah put it, or call upon the name of the Lord, as the Lord put it. And they're going to do that, but they're going to suffer a lot of trouble along the way until they finally get to that point. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that you reveal to us concerning Israel and the end times and our place in it and in relation to it. These are amazing, wonderful things to know, to learn, 
and to regard you with high regard over because you're a God who knows the future and no other person, place, or thing can ever say they know the future, but you do. And you know it will come to pass because you have determined that it will come to pass. So along those lines, we know that you intend to come back or that Jesus intends to come back for the church. And I know I would pray, and I hope every other believer would pray, that that would come soon, sooner rather than later. So we look forward to that time. We look forward to being in your presence. We look for presence. We look forward to uh, the wedding with the Lamb, and we look forward to the return for the kingdom and the wedding supper of the Lamb and the kingdom celebration that's going to last for a thousand years and the restoration of Israel into the land. These are amazing, wonderful truths, and we thank you for them. We thank you for the work that you do in our life in the here and now. We thank you for leading us and guiding us and introducing us to the truth of the Word of God so that we can live it, up, live it out through our lives and, and be a fountain of truth for other people who maybe don't know the Bible as well, and we can help them come to learn it and understand it. So we thank you for all of these things. We thank you for your presence with us in this house this morning. We pray for your blessing on us in the coming week. We pray for your blessing on our new pastor coming up in next summer to be our full-time pastor. We pray for your blessing on his wife and his children as they uh, walk alongside him in this new endeavor, this new ministry that he's going to enter into. And we thank you for him and for bringing him to us. And we pray for our elders and deacons that we lead well and serve well in this house that goes by your name. In Jesus' name, amen.